Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Gabby, this is sort of a different approach, I would say, this week to what we've done with some of our podcast episodes in the past. Would you perhaps agree, disagree? A little bit, yeah. Okay, and and I don't say that to scare our guest here, but I do say it in the sense of usually we sort of dig our hooks into news stories, a local take on a broad topic, maybe it's politics or what happened in an election, legislative session, but this isn't necessarily one of those topics. That's right. Today, we're talking to someone with a lot of stories. On this podcast, we set out to share stories about people of New Mexico, newsmakers in the community, those with unique experiences who have stories worth sharing. And this week, we're talking to someone who's gone from a high-profile, well-known and significant role in criminal justice to a different kind of high-profile role now in the business community. Our reporting careers crossed paths with this week's guest a lot in the early days of our jobs covering New Mexico news. As far as the investigation goes, I know you have a lot of questions from your reporter seat and the community. We can't answer detailed questions because one, either we're not in the position to or we don't have that information. We understand if you have some general questions, we can field a few of those. That's the voice of Pete Cassettis. You might remember he led New Mexico State Police as the chief of the agency from August 2013 through December 2018 when he retired. I remember hearing from Chief Cassettis, who was often pretty candid during some of the biggest news stories in the state that we saw in those stretch of years, including several mass shooting responses and a lot of other big news stories. But the top lawman has that in the rear view these days. He's a business owner and has his hands in one of the biggest recent development shakeups in Albuquerque, that being in Old Town. And this week, we thought it would be an interesting chance to profile that journey from top cop to now Albuquerque business owner and the challenges that have maybe come with both of those roles. So Pete Cassettas, thanks for coming back. Of course. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. So to age ourselves a bit in this room, Chris and I have both been reporters here in New Mexico for more than a decade each. And at least for me, I'm used to calling you chief because, you know, to give our listeners a bit of background, you did serve 26 years with the New Mexico State Police starting in grants back in 1992. You've worked both in patrol and criminal investigations as an officer and a supervisor served five years as the chief of the state's largest police department and retired in 2019. So first, how's retirement been treating you? Oh man, retirement. I tell you that word, I struggled with it, uh, but it's life is good. Um, I haven't, I've retired from law enforcement, obviously, but uh, I've um, been able to kind of follow my passion and that's where I'm at now. It's great. And we do still see you around in the community, which reminded me like this, you know, he would be a really interesting guy to just have a sit down chat with about just what you've been up to. So do you miss law enforcement at all? Um, I, I do in the sense that I miss the adrenaline rush it provided. I miss the men and women of the state police. I miss the mission that that stuff I miss, but I don't, you know, there's other aspects that I don't miss obviously. And you know, 26 year career is long. A five and a half year career as the chief or a stint as the chief is super long. I was given advice early on by a, a chief and he said, uh, hey, enjoy the job and uh, take my advice. Don't stay too long. And I, and, and, and I probably did. There's a bell curve to that job. But I will start out by saying that when I, I've been in the studio a lot. Right. I was very open with the media, all of the the, the studio and papers uh, here in Albuquerque. And I used to walk in the front door, uniform, badge, gun, walk right through different time. I walk in, I get buzzed in. I sign my name. I get searched. Not not really, but it's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And I wait and then I show up with gifts (laughs) for you. This is what I love about my life right now. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Either of you. Oh, thank you. You got downshift beer. Uh, we appreciate Crowlers Thank you. Oh, to, take, yes. to take home. 
And and to tell you where I'm at in my life, it's like what nine thirty in the morning. We could crack these open right now. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> if you I like, we could. No, but I, yeah, you know, you know what our bosses would Some say. Some of the bosses might have uh, something to say, but yeah, yeah, that does speak to where you're at today. Very different stage of yeah. your life. Yeah. You're in it for people can't see, but like you're in a t-shirt. You look casual. Like again, not gun and badge. Feeling maybe like you're in a hot seat like you used to be. No, no, no. And even when I was in the hot seat, I knew it was for the right reason. Was it uncomfortable? Yes. But, you know, it's uh, um, questions have to be answered. And I was the guy at the time and I'm not now. And I respect the folks that are doing it now. Looking back, you know, can you shed some insight on what it was like for you being the chief of police for New Mexico State? Did it feel like a lot of politics or did you like being in that role? Um, you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, it was the beginning, like drinking water through a fire hose. And I, that analogy, I'm sure you've heard a lot. Yeah. You know, when I first started my career, I never wanted to say I want to be the chief. It's just, it's like playing little league baseball and you're saying I want to play in the majors. It's, it's, a, uh, you know, you got to get there. And, and, you, and I climbed through the ranks and I learned as much as I could. And when I got the job, you know, it, you, at first you're not very popular. People, people know you, but like, what kind of chief is this guy going to be? Right. Right. Everybody's, and then everybody's kind of apprehensive. And then you start making a name for yourself. And the way I did the job was I figured I'd lose it in three months because I, 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 you know, I kind of shoot from the hip and mm. I, there were some things I wanted to get done, pay increases and new buildings and cars and helicopters and everything else that we needed as an agency. And, um, it ended up lasting longer than that, you know, five and a half years. You know, I, I liked the job. I never, like I said, I never really enjoyed it because I didn't take the time to enjoy it. And I probably should have more. Um, but, you know, to be named the 21st chief is just amazing. It's, it's just a, it's an honor. I mean, not, not everybody gets there. 21 out of how many thousands of state police officers. And I think uh, I changed the agency for the better. And there are things that I do regret that I didn't do, get done or did right. And at the end of the day, what I didn't like was the politics. It's you know, in this state, it's unfortunate, like unlike Colorado, the chief doesn't change with every governor. So there's some consistency there. But uh, in this state, no matter who who's running or who who wins a D and R, it's irrelevant. The chief always changes and change is good. Change is good. I, I embrace it. But, um, you know, it's a it's a very political position if you let it be. And my my I guess my problem was is I didn't let it be. I didn't did, I didn't play well with the politics. I everybody has a boss, an adult handler. I get it. But uh, I still was a public safety officer. I took an oath. And, and a lot of those um, political people didn't understand that. You know, early on in my career as a chief, I was asked by someone on the governor's staff to get some information on a homicide. And I thought, well, that's my job as a chief. I need to get them information, right? Mm -hmm. So I did. I called my APD contact and they said, okay, and gave me what I needed. And it was sensitive information. And the next day, I, in the paper, I see that information. I'm like, what happened? So I called the person in the governor's office and I said, what you asked for this information and you gave it out. And he says, yeah, that's, that's what you do. We ask, you get, we, we needed to give that to, to the media for whatever reason. And I realized then and there that, wait a minute, this is a, this is a double-edged sword. Like I gotta be really careful. Like, do I have to feed the beast up there? Yes. But I also need to protect the contacts I have and, and the integrity of what we're doing as a whole. And again, the mission of the governor's office was different than mine. You know, don't get me wrong. They did. I did get a wide berth when I was a chief, which, which some chiefs don't. But uh, I, I learned very quickly early on that uh, it's a powerful position and you got to be really careful with the information you have. Yeah. What was, if you could think back, what do you think was the biggest challenge that you did face in that position? You know, I... I guess at the end, I guess the middle of my run, I realized that I was more of a CEO of, a, of an entity, you know, budget and finance. Uh, I had the, the, the personnel issues, hiring, firing. So I, I approached it about, I don't know, about a year into it, realizing that I'm not a, really a cop anymore. Mm. Don't get me wrong. I would do cop things like when I got a chance, I'd ride with the auto theft unit, the joint unit and with APD, BCSO and state police. That was fun. I was right in the middle of the Trump riots in the streets instead of the command center because I like to, to work with the officers. But at the end of the day, I think um, I think the reality of the job was that it was how do, how do I manipulate? How do I and manipulate's a hard word, but it's how do I manipulate these people and whether it's the legislature or whoever else to get the things we need for the department so we can serve the state of New Mexico. And I think it went relatively well. It just 
it, it depends on who you ask. You know, the, the reality is crime's out of control, right? Whose fault is that? I don't know. We can point fingers all day. But at, at the end of my 26-year career, I somewhat feel like a failure, right? How, I, I didn't make that big of, did I make that big of a difference? Did my department? Certainly not saying the state police failed, but as a leader, what, look where we're at now. Could have I done things differently to have a better outcome, right? And I'm just one small cog in a big system, but look at the state we're in now. It's terrible. Things you think about, Yeah. Do you feel like, though, that you had any accomplishments at state police? Um, because, you know, I think people would probably look back and they have memories of certain things that you did along the way. And I'm sure there's there's got to be something out there you felt proud of doing <laughs> along the years. Did oh, you yeah. feel any accomplishments in your time as the chief there? Chris, that, that question, it, it it's interesting. Is I When I left state police, I was done, right? It was a point in my life where I just it completely shut down. I changed my phone number. I just wanted nothing to do with it. And um, I, I actually watched some video of a send off that they did uh, for me at the FOP and it was very touching, but that part of my life was a, a blur. But I, I feel as far as accomplishments go, I, I'm pretty uh, proud of the fact that I was able to raise the manpower levels. I was able to raise pay significantly. Uh, and, and, and mind you, in a time where we didn't have a huge budget surplus, we were fighting for every, every dollar. Right. I was able to add uh, infrastructure, whether it was uh, buildings, you know, the Santa Fe District One building in, is still going up right, right now. Right. Um, there's other ones that came online because I was able to receive and get funding, not just me alone, but a collective group of people. Uh, and then the helicopter, which was really nice. Chief Johnson invited me after I retired to the hangar, which was new too, uh, and uh, did the dedication. Unfortunately, I um, never got to fly in it. Mm. I'd asked Tim, hey, you know, it's, it's a, I said, hey, Tim, I got the helicopter for us, $13 million acquisition. How about you just let the guys take me for a ride? He says, you know, come on, chief. <laughs> the media would be all over us on that right. one. So I was like, oh, damn it. Okay. No joy ride for me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was really important because, you know, we had a helicopter, but we didn't have any hoist capability. You know, we, so we'd find people in the wilderness and then we'd be like, hey, we'll be back. And then we have to find the National Guard or BCSO. Oh, and as a result of a you know, tragic crash that we did have, we were able to um, really realize a lot of the safety aspects that need to be improved. And then I was able to sell our, our helicopter, the, the replacement helicopter, and buy this one. And now we have that capability. So I'm really happy for the, the men and women doing the mission. Yeah. You certainly were a really visible chief. You know, I, I was thinking about what you had said earlier about you're not necessarily a cop when you're in that top role. You become this chief executive, you're working on budgets, you're working on personnel, and you're kind of being the spokesperson at times for the department. I think about all of the years where, you know, my reporting, Gabby's reporting intersected with big stories that state police had, and you were there, you know, facing protesters in Taos after the Oriana Farrell a video release. That was certainly one thing. The state police chief will meet with a group of people concerned about this controversial traffic stop when an officer shot at the tires of a van full of kids. Late last month, an officer pulled over Oriana Farrell and her five kids near Taos. Facing reporters for questions about school shootings in Roswell and Aztec and then, you know, the library shooting that happened in Clovis. Um, there were public comments that you made at one point about the Forest Fen treasure hunt. I know that put you back out there in the headlines after people were going missing, searching for this treasure. And then as well, one other note to mention, I recall you commenting on your concern about the work that the department was doing, you know, rank and file officers. You know, one thing we and I had interviewed you about was um, the nature of NMSP's investigation into uh, traffic stop involving uh, then district attorney Francesca Estevez out in southwest New Mexico. Mm. The state police chief is talking about his officer's failure to act after police let a DA go after she was videotaped weaving all over the road. A lot of memories about big stories and these are maybe just a few of the stories that perhaps some of our listeners remember but do you have a memorable moment good or bad in your tenure as chief? Oh, I have several at the, <laughs> at the hands of KRQE, actually, yeah. but uh, not in a bad way. I mean, I went, it, it's a high profile job. Things are going to happen. And to back up a little bit, I and mean, this is the kind of bad history of state police. We Every department experiences issues like this. But do you remember the, the um, situation with the officer on the hood of his car? Yes. Remember that? Mm -hmm. The state cop caught on camera having sex is no longer a state cop this morning. Officer Bert Lopez is seen in these surveillance photos having sex with a woman 
on the hood of a car in a remote section of Santa Fe County. So I was the deputy chief, and Robert Schilling was the chief at the time. And when something like that happens, no one wants to talk to the deputy chief. Who do they want to talk to? You want to talk to the chief? Yeah, the yeah. chief, right? Yeah. So I remember sitting in my office with Robert in there, and we had the two pictures of this, right? And the sheriff then of Santa Fe County said, hey, we're going to release these to the media tomorrow. Be ready. So we're like, okay, here it comes, right? And Schilling looks at me and he says, my God, Pete, there's no playbook for this. What do I do? And I'm looking at the pictures and I look at him and I say, you know what, Rob? Sucks to be the chief, right? <laughs> and we kind of laughed about it. And then, you know, that thing went it broke and it went viral, right? So we fast forward to, I get the chief's job. And the first real big thing that I, I get faced with is I'm sitting at home and, and my then wife uh, is watching the news and it's kind of playing in the background. It's, it's channel 13. And um, there's this, I hear sirens and they're talking about a pursuit. It's Alex Goldsmith, yep. the reporter. Yeah. And um, it's the, it's the Taos incident, right? The shooting at the van. Well, now the story of that traffic stop that spun wildly out of control. It includes a 14 year old boy rushing an officer in order to defend his mom officers using tasers and batons, smashing windows and firing shots into a minivan with five kids inside. Here's News 13's Alex Goldsmith with the video that could have some cops in hot water. Alex? Dick, it was a wild scene and it's hard to believe it all started with a simple speeding ticket. And uh, my then wife says, hey, is that your guys? And I said, well, no, I'm the, the chief of the state police. Like, I, I would know if we shot at a van full of a family, right? Like I had no idea, mm. right? And it was, I think about, I don't know, a month into my tenure. Maybe yeah, you were new. It was new, yeah. And then I'm looking at the, the video and, it, and I thought, that's, that's Reeriba County because at the time they had uniforms that looked similar to ours, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden my, my phone rings and it's, it's the chief of staff. And I'm like, oh, I don't answer it. Click, that's not good. Uh -oh. Then the phone rings again, it's the governor, Governor Susana Martinez. Oh gosh. Uh, Maybe it was my guys, right? So oh, wow. I start making phone calls and it turns out that, uh, you know, it, it is a state police, right? And I have to then figure out what to do. And I decided that's a pivotal moment, right? Is I decide, you know, it, it, it is, why are we so cloaked in secrecy? We need to own it, right? right? We need to investigate it. We need all the facts before I speak, but we need to own it. And that was an interesting time. I was faced with whether I was going to be the chief or not. Those officers, I certain people in government wanted them fired immediately. And I refused to do it, right? Even though if they did wrong and there's due process, criminals get it, cops should get it, right? I ended up terminating one, terminating one and two are still great productive members of the department, but I held my ground. But I did, I did get a call from Robert Schilling who'd retired and I pick up the phone and I say, God, Robert, this is, this is again, I'm faced with something that there's no, there's no guidance. The then cabinet secretary, no playbook. The, even the cabinet secretary said, you're on your own. He took three steps back, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not getting any of this on mm -hmm. me. And he had, he, you know what he told me? Sucks to be the chief. And he hung up. <laughs> that, was, oh uh, that was my indoctrination into, indoctrination into, you know, the fast paced moving scenarios that I, I, I was in, which led to the Roswell school shooting. And, and then, then there on, it was kind of one after the other. Unfortunately, you know, my career has been marred with having either answer for the conduct of my officers or myself. And of course, the, the crime that goes on through our communities. I will tell you, though, I have been identified as the chief of the state police for the last three or four years since I have retired. People recognize me right from being in the media because I did put the department out there. Certainly. And I, and I put myself out there at probably at some cost. But I felt that it was important to really allow people in behind the curtain of what we did to understand. And for the first time I was at a concert at El Rey of all places. And this, these two girls walked up to me, these two ladies and said, Oh my God, we know you. And I'm like, Oh, here we go. You know, I'm at a concert, I'm going to get pummeled. And, uh, it's like, you're the guy that owns downshift. Like, oh yeah. So now it's pivoting from cop go. to, I own a brewery bar or whatever. So it's just, it was like, I was so happy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. The new chapter has yes. started to take root yeah. in that sense. Which we will get into, but before we pivot to that chapter of your life, I do want to just mention that pivotal moment that you had, you know, watching state police officers shoot at a minivan full of a family who for our viewers who aren't familiar, you found out after it was already on the news. And that was also a pivotal moment for, I think, your relationship with the media going forward. Um, you mentioned it was Alex Goldsmith. He's a former KRQE reporter 
And you did have a phone call chat with him at the time, right? I did. You know, uh, to, to Alex's credit, he did try to call me. But my staff had insulated me. They thought, well, you know, this is, we have pursuits all the time. Uh -huh. And nobody got shot. No one was hit. So, and then it was kind of marginalized. Then the then commander that had sent it up was not a fan of Pete Cassettis and uh, kind of got buried in the shuffle, which it should have been, you know, elevated to, to my level. And Alex did try. And um, moving forward, another, um, Larry Barker, I, I got to know him. He had told me one day, he says, you know, Pete, we're, we're not bad people. We're, we're, we're just like you. We're trying to get to the truth. Now we do it different ways for different reasons, but we're trying to get to the truth. And that resonated with me. It's like, you know what, you know, the media has a job to do and it's not always going to be rosy, but um, all I asked for was fair and accurate reporting. And, and I would tell my staff when they would, would warn me like, you know, you can, we can't talk about this. I said, why not? Why not give them information, not to compromise anything that we're doing, of course, but give them information that's accurate. Mm -hmm. That way they can report it accurately. Otherwise they're going to do what they got to do. And they talk to someone that probably knows 50% about it and it doesn't, doesn't yeah. match. Interesting. Yeah. That was really helpful. in just, just reporting the news to have your, we all had your cell phone number. And if it, if we knew it was important enough, we're like, we should probably reach out to the chief. We yeah. could, which was appreciated. That, that did, that was a, that was a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, I, the reporters that I trusted that I knew were on the big stories would have that number. And they knew when to call. There was one with another station that was is close by to you that, that he's no longer there, but he can call me like three in the morning for something stupid. And I let him have it. Like, no, this is not <laughs> Boundaries. the phone. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, you know, and, and so most of the folks that had it knew that, you know, ultimately it'll come through the PIO, but let's call the chief because it's, it's going it, to, it's going to go big. You weren't doing me any favors other than, I was able to get in front of it to give you the best information. I get an impression that you carried yourself with a lot more candor than perhaps predecessors did. Did you see yourself as a candid chief? Oh yeah. I, I, um, I probably annoyed some of those former chiefs and, and, and others that, uh, honestly, to be, to be, be truthful, that started when I was a Lieutenant in investigations here in Albuquerque. I was very frustrated. Uh, there was a, a, a homicide that we worked in. We were Perco. And um, um, I don't know if you remember this, but there was two gas stations or convenience areas and, and uh, three, three people were killed. One of them actually is, is related to an a reporter here. And um, I, I got to meet that reporter's sister, the sister of one of the victims. And it was very touching. Uh, that's one of those cases where you just never forget, right? And the, then, then I was just a lieutenant and the people above me were just, we had to be secret about everything. And I'm like, are you kidding me? There's a news, news helicopters are up and watching us chase this suspect across the reservation. Like there's no, we, why aren't we telling them who we're looking for and why we're looking and what happened? And, and it just seemed that, that the longer we held on to information that was unnecessary, the misinformation got out there. And now I look, you know, things have changed. Look at the situation, terrible situation in Farmington that, that you guys and everybody else is covering that happened. And uh, I think the authorities, once they have their ducks in the row, are doing a great job of managing it as far as releasing information and not just holding back. Cause there was a time you'd wait four or five, six days to even hear an officer's name that was involved. Right. right. Or victims information was just, maybe it was leaked, but it was difficult to get. And now it's just, it's a little, it's a lot more visible. And again, I always argued or always kind of struggled with, we have to find that fine line of not impacting an investigation, but also being able to keep the public informed. Looking back at your career, we know you did face a lot of scrutiny as well. Is there anything that you regret that oh, you're willing yeah. to talk about? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was a different human being back then. The job causes you to become calloused. And um, the problem was I was too trusting. You know, I had a great staff, but um, at the end of the day, what was my demise? And, and I can look back on it now and reflect on it is I didn't do things that would protect myself. I didn't, I don't like recording people. I don't like saving text messages. And, you know, we, we all say things that we probably regret or taken out of context, but, and, and never expect, you know, people to, to file lawsuits or, and everything else. You know, get me wrong. I made some mistakes, but you know, this is a litigious state and uh, that's one of the downfalls. It's a cottage industry to sue the state of New Mexico because chances are you're going to get paid out. Maybe it's a big payday. Maybe it's a small payday. Do, you know, do, was there some culpability on my part on some of the things that happened to me? Sure. But nothing to the extent that's put in a, in a lawsuit. And people don't understand that, you know, when, what happened to me when that whole situation broke open and maybe your viewers can just figure it out on their own or you can lead them to it. But I 
was given the lawsuit by the New Mexican. I think a reporter in the New Mexican had called and sent it over. And it, it, interesting, the first one, there, you know, when you get a lawsuit, there's a bunch of numbers stamped on top of it, right? And it's been filed with the court, right? Well, this one has clean, nothing, which told me that this was just, it's going to be a very public, you know, hatchet job. And you read it and you know, these lawyers and people can put anything they want in these lawsuits. It doesn't matter. It could be, that's their job, right? Right. They can make any allegation and it gets settled later exactly. in terms so, of arguments. But, you know, how do I look at my then wife and kids in the eye and, and tell them, hey, this isn't me. And then you're, you know, the next morning you're above the fold, right? And you're trying to figure out what, what now? and you get wrapped up in this, I call it a scandal. You know, and I was very candid about it. $1.7 million of your money. That's what was paid out in the last days of Governor Martinez's administration. Why? Six state employees filed claims with New Mexico's risk management office in late November last year, claiming harassment, hostile work environment, women being passed over for a promotion, unfair treatment and retaliation by then state police chief Cassettes. However, all of the claims were confidentially settled by year's end. A three-month Larry Barker investigation finds that New Mexico's risk management office paid public money to keep damaging allegations about the ex-governor from going public. These claims were settled in 30 days. The files were then sealed from public view. The truth should come out eventually. The truth needs to come out. These settlements are cloaked in secrecy and the public should be able to see them. Why were the cases settled so quickly? Well, that's the $1.7 million question. Confidential sources involved with this case say the claims were resolved in the final days of the Martinez administration out of fear that personal information about the governor might be made public. I think you know, some good came out of that, honestly. It was very difficult. My first two years after retirement were, were pretty low point in my life, but I look back on it now and I appreciate what Larry Barker did for me and the journal. He allowed me to tell my side at the peril of being sued myself because there was all these, you know, you can't talk gag orders. But, you know, it's funny because Fogg, for instance, you know, was always talking about open government and it's odd because because of me, because I came forward, a lot of that changed. You can't settle lawsuits and keep them quiet for four years mm -hmm. with, you know, you can't, it's, it's very um, transparent, which it should be. And of course it got there through uh, governor Michelle Lujan Gershom, right? She's the one that really pushed that forward. But I think I started that ball rolling of saying, you know, this is wrong. You, you shouldn't, you shouldn't settle cases with taxpayer money and then have no explanation as to why. Once again, we feel it's very important to provide as much information as possible. General Services Secretary Ken Ortiz, who oversees the state's risk management division, is celebrating the launch of the new state website, now hosting more than 70 lawsuit settlement agreements, all up for public view. Public can search it, view it, and from there, we're always available to answer any questions. The release comes months after News 13 investigative reporter Larry Barker exposed a handful of lawsuits quietly settled at the end of Governor Susana Martinez's administration, which cost taxpayers nearly $2 million. Under this administration, we're really focused on providing as much information to the public. That the taxpayers should know. And I did that as the chief, as, as, and I understand it. You know, there's... There's an economics behind it. I, I was in mediations, countless mediations for the conduct of my officers. And we'd make settlement payments because we pay someone $20,000 versus defending that particular action for 150,000. Right. Okay. But, and there's other ones you should take to the mat. And I felt mine should have been taken to the mat and it didn't, but it did. I did. I left at a low point. I wanted to leave differently, but it did help me define and understand who I didn't want to be anymore. And again, being the chief is one thing. You have to have a certain amount of ego and swagger and you know bravado to do the job. But um, I choose never to surround myself with people like that. And that's why I'm in the business that I'm in now. Yeah. So there's probably, you probably also have answers to this question, but my last question, just wrapping up about the tenure of your career and the sort of transparency that I feel like you projected is there a particular case that makes you think either, man, that was crazy, or I wish the public knew this part of the story? No, I mean, I, I, there's just not one case that stands out. I, there's situations, you know, the Trump riots, we call them the riots, but 
the way that thing unfolded was was amazing. And it, it, it just just took off and took wings. And I still get props from APD officers that that I was down in the streets with that I worked with that night. But um, as far as any one particular case, no. I mean, there's just so it's just overwhelming to think about. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely did my best to as my as I was exiting stage left to draw attention to what I thought was a, a wrong. Other than that, you know, I just. I tried to be as transparent as I could. The Trump rally, are you talking about in 2016? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was there. I was outside covering that. What was it like for law enforcement when when fires started burning and rocks were being thrown at the police? I remember responding to it and I went, instead of going up to the RTC, I think it's called, the the city has, Mm -hmm. I went down to right in front of the convention center. I think it's third and gold maybe. Yeah, And there was a large crowd and APD had our horses there and they had the riot folks there. And there's a bunch of state cops there. Not enough. We didn't have enough people. And we didn't, um, we weren't outfitted with riot gear. We didn't have any at the time. State police just had a helmet and a baton. Right. And um, we're standing shoulder to shoulder with the different agencies there. And it was just, it was just kind of gridlock. Uh, we, we didn't know what to do. Uh, the command for APD was calling the shots and there was, it was starting to escalate. And the last straw for me was, we had an officer get punched in the face and I saw that happen and I thought, okay, that's not good. Mm-hmm. And then they started jumping on our police cars. And then I knew from there on it was, we've lost it. And I kept getting told time and time again by the officers there, Hey, APD command wants you to back off, come to the RTC, let us handle it. I said, no, we got to move. And finally, one of their deputy chiefs, Roseman, Will Roseman, he's, he's since retired. He met me uh, at that location and he came, he came from another call and, and I said, Will, we got we to gotta do something. And he agreed. And we turned and, and, and said, it's go time. And we got to push this crowd back. And uh, otherwise, they're going to overwhelm us. And it was an all-night process of trying to protect property and people. Reporters, I remember a couple, I, I've said, you got to move. You're going to yeah. get hit with a rock. They're throwing rocks and whatnot. Officers were getting you know, taken out left and right. It was like a combat you know, situation. And um, we worked through the night and, and got control again. And we learned a valuable lesson. You know, I was able to institute emergency response training, get the proper equipment. And then, uh, you know, we, we, that was one of the only times in my career where we had a, every district was required to send officers. Within two or three hours, we went from a force of 20 state police officers to over 100. And uh, then we, you know, we couldn't arrest anybody because we didn't have any infrastructure. The city was ill-prepared for it. And uh, we've, we learned a lot since then, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's evolved. But it was it was a dark night in our history. You know, I remember asking someone, one of the rioters, the protesters down there, why are you here? You know, no idea. Republican, Democrat, no idea. Just wanted to break shit. Yeah. Jump mm. on the police cars and throw yeah, rocks. Throw rocks. And it was kind of a all out call out to come downtown and, and do bad stuff. And you know, it's sad I don't even think downtown's recovered from that in all these years. It's it's just, you know, old town's a slice of little slice of heaven. I love that place. And I go downtown and it's a little little disappointing. But it's it's coming up, but there's there's some, still some work to be done. Well, we definitely want to talk about that. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to talk about that new chapter of Pete Cassettis' life here as a local business owner, some of the challenges maybe you're facing in that role. But as you mentioned, a little slice of heaven. with New Mexico's former top lawman, now business owner. And let's get into this new chapter post-Chief Pete. Tell us about your business. What's it called? And also, what made you want to invest in Old Town? Well, um, I have always been an entrepreneur. I owned a car wash for, I guess, 24, 25 years up on, on East Central. And uh, so I've always had this kind of desire to, to, do, to do something different. When I retired, um, I was a typical, I got to get a job. I got to be a cop. I got to still be a cop. That's all I know. And um, realized that that wasn't going to happen. And that's kind of a byproduct of how I left. But it ended up being something that was positive, right? And at the time, my first two years after retirement, I didn't see it that way. I was mountain biking, drinking whiskey, trying to live my life. Yeah. I reconnected with my daughters. Uh, they're great. And um, I'm a grandpa now. So that's I'm happy about that. Congrats. Yeah. Youngest grandpa in the history of ever. <laughs> but, oh my uh, God. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I decided 
The person that bought the plaza, his name is Jasper Riddle, and he owns a noisy water winery. And Jasper and I were uh, through my marriage related, right? And um, Jasper and I are pretty close. And he said, hey, we're buying this plaza in Old Town. We're going to turn it around. We're going to invest some money and time and effort. Why don't you manage the plaza? Come out of retirement because you're really doing nothing. You're just kind of spiraling downward. I'm like, oh, thanks. You got the, candid with thanks, you. Yeah, thanks for the pep talk, <laughs> Jasper. And um, he's got a business partner named Luke Schneider, and he's out of Tucson. And those two had bought the plaza with with some big plans. And I said, what do I know about managing a plaza and contractors? And they had a whole bunch of money they were going to use to you know, fix it up. I'm like, you were the chief of the state police. Give me a break. You figure it out. It's like, okay. So I decided to do it. And I took the first few months just cleaning up some of the homelessness transient vandalism issues. We're about 40% capacity. And I really kind of jumped in both feet, tried to manage this project and really built up this place and got it full. It's hundred percent capacity now, but about halfway through that, my nephew, uh, Cody Huffman, again, through marriage, he met me at the plaza and we met upstairs where downshift outpost is right now. And we looked at the space and we were trying to rent it out. Um, the owners were trying to court a Albuquerque brewery already established and okay. people were really concerned because it was so close to the church. Oh, right. And uh, Jasper had uh, acquired a letter from them saying, Hey, it's okay to do it. Yeah. And uh, I use that letter within a certain distance. Within, of yeah, Cause we were like 86 feet away. I'd be 300 feet. I still have that letter. My girlfriend gets mad at me. I pull it out like, Hey, look, the Catholic church endorses me. Stop. <laughs> Stop. So um, it doesn't work. But um, you know, um, with that letter in hand, the city, listen. And we went through a whole bunch of zoning things and, you know, zone the process with the state and the city and licensing. And then, uh, before that though, Cody and I talked and we were going to do a little restaurant in there and, uh, Cody's great idea. He's younger than me. I love that kid, but his great idea was a brewery's going to come in and we're going to open up a chicken strip place and we're going to call okay. it the strip club. Oh gosh. And, and the girls that work for us, we're going to call them the strippers. And I said, I'm like, Oh God, Cody, no. Have, have you ever heard of the me too movement? Like we're not doing this. This is a terrible idea, terrible idea. And then Jasper said, yeah, that, that, that idea does not fly. So it's not what we want to do with Old Town. Sheehan Winery was coming in and of course, Noisy Water was ramping up. And if you know anything about Old Town, it's beautiful, it's quaint, it's awesome. But about five o'clock, everything shuts down and there's no real place to mm -hmm. enjoy a beverage, an alcoholic beverage. And we wanted to do it with uh, the flavor of everything's local, right? And we wanted to make sure that we did it in the context of of a safe place. We, you know, we don't want to, we're not selling miniatures or nothing bad about that, but we're just not that kind of a bar or a place. And, um, Cody and I started building the bar out. We built everything pretty much ourselves. And it took us uh, about four months and we did it during COVID. And a lot of people said we were stupid and crazy to do it, but we knew once that ended, people were going to come back. And then we sat on it for seven months. We'd go up there and drink some whiskey have a beer, but we couldn't open because one COVID and then two is we had some licensing stuff to work through. And once we opened in November of what, a year and a half ago, it's just been building ever since it's been, a, it's a great community place. We've got not only the tourists that come, right. And I, I honestly, I never realized the economic impact of the balloon fiesta. It's amazing, but tourists, but uh, the locals really like it. So it's, it's taken off. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, I know both of us have been there. Um, certainly it's a beautiful place and you, I think realize as well what old town is or was, I should say, and how this has been a little bit transformative for sure. It's breathed new life into that area. Um, and it's certainly, I think to your point, it's given locals a reason to go to old town when usually that's a pretty tourist heavy place. So, you know, what has been maybe the most fulfilling part of this new venture at all? Is it, is it making that spot for locals? Is it, you know, something else? Something personal. And, you know, I didn't get into this business to sell alcohol. It kind of sounds funny from a guy that owns a venue that sells alcohol, right? Which I did bring you guys some crowlers of, of our beer. We appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Gabrielle, I know you want a margarita in here. Yeah. I couldn't pull that off. Um, I'm, I did it for different reasons. Cody and I did it for different reasons. We wanted to build a community. We wanted to, we wanted to tie into the community. So if you go to our place, you're going to realize it's, it's there's seating where you can actually sit with your entire family uh, on couches and you know actually have conversations. We, uh, we're kid friendly. We're dog friendly. Um, you know, so we have a patio. And I'm I'm really not trying to sell the place to your listeners. I'm just trying to say that we've created an environment where we people are comfortable. And what I like about it is I 
realized when I retired, I had, had to figure out what I liked to do, what I wanted to do. And I realized that I, I made a list of things that I like to do. And, and at the top of that list was I like to talk to people. And I did as chief too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but of course you're in a uniform or they, you know, your job and they're a lot more guarded. But uh, in the industry that I'm in now, it's amazing. I meet people from all over the world that come through here. A lot of people come to Albuquerque and it's a beautiful state. I try and promote the state. Uh, I do. I, I love the outdoors. I love what the state has to offer. The bar has allowed me to really change my focus. And I get, it's beautiful because I get to work next to my, my daughter has a hair salon right next door to it. So I see her every day. She kicks me out of there all the time. Dad, <laughs> quit bothering my clients. Okay. <laughs> but uh, she has a hair salon. My other nephew, Cody's brother, has, has a business there. Jasper has a business there. So it's kind of a family, you know, centric place. And that follows through with what we're doing in, in life. I really have really reevaluated who I want to be in my orbit and who I don't. And that's probably a good thing. I, I believe it is. It's interesting, guys. I, I used to get phone calls all the time as a chief and just, oh, my phone would ring off the hook. And at the time, I'm, you know, my poor ex-wife, I mean, put up with that. But you cannot not answer, right? And it was right. homicide police shooting, misconduct, you know, just, and now it's, it's great. It's, Hey, we're out of vodka. <laughs> All right. Well, let's buy some more. You know, yeah. it's like, I still have stress and problems, but they're just so minute and they're so it's easy to work with. And I'm surrounded by a young group of people, bartenders. It's fulfilling to help them. Some are single moms that are, that are, you know, just trying to make it. Uh, others are students, you know, that, you know, working, working when they can and doing homework in between shifts and it's kind of nice to be able to provide them an atmosphere where they can feel safe and can make some money to get through through life. And then it's just, we know it's a pit stop, right? Like there's not a lot of lifers in this industry behind the bar, but uh, it's a fun place to work. We have no shortage of people wanting to work there, which is a testament to what Cody and I built. So we're happy about that. That's cool. That is awesome. Yeah. We've certainly heard from business owners in Albuquerque, and I know it's not an easy thing to run a business in Albuquerque. You know, people are frustrated with crime, police responses, break-ins. Now you're seeing things maybe from the other side of law enforcement. Has your perspective changed at all when it comes to crime in Albuquerque? And what kinds of things do you see in Old Town? You know, it's, it's, that's a great question. I've always been involved in business, having that car wash on East Central. And I'm, I know it's difficult through vandalism, but it's nothing like it is now. I have been associated with that plaza close to two years. And there's a new level of aggressiveness from the folks that are either homeless or mentally ill. I have had to put hands on people, unfortunately, to protect myself and others 10, 15 times. It's just, it's, it's, you ask people to move along there's businesses and there's just nowhere for anybody to go. Or if there is, they don't know about it. I know that it's an uphill battle for APD. When we do call them, it takes too long to get there, but I can't fault them because they have, you know, and I've seen it, you know, they get to their car and they fire it up and they fire their computer up and they have 15 calls for service pending. You know, from a business perspective, uh, an owner, it's difficult. It's difficult to have tourists or people come to our establishments when there are folks on every corner of this city, every intersection. And I know that there is, you know, there's a human element to it. You wanna help people, but there's also to the reality that we need to protect our assets, our employees. And uh, that's a difficult balance. In Old Town, I think ever since they closed that park mm-hmm. um, up the street, it's just, it's gotten just exponentially worse with people that, cause Old Town's kind of like a pocket, right? It's like the last pocket of quiet, you know, nice space. And a lot of folks know that. so. If you're on Central, you might you have, you have a bigger chance of encountering a police officer or someone bad than if you find a nook and cranny in Old Town. There's a lot of them. It's like the State Fair when I was, I love that place when I was a chief. All right, it was great for the community and, and, and I love that the layout and the atmosphere. The Old Town's a different version of it. And uh, it takes a lot to protect that. As a matter of fact, I went to a meeting yesterday on a safety meeting. We're trying to organize as, as merchants and, and owners of businesses to figure out how to best combat this. And the reality is that the only thing we can think of is higher security and that's expensive. So we're kind of, we're kind of at a crossroads now. We, we do definitely my, my relationship with the Albuquerque police department has helped. I'm able to give them information that helps them. They're able to respond and help us, but uh, I, they can't keep up with it. There's just no way. You mentioned business owners working together to come up with an idea of maybe what they can do to help themselves. Do you have any ideas about maybe you know, along the lines of some of the frustrations you're experiencing, how law enforcement and the criminal justice system is handling issues 
in Albuquerque now and what maybe you would like to see them do? <laughs> well, this is just from an old, you know, ex-cop perspective. But uh, when I, I actually talk to a lot of the people that are either homeless or committing the crimes, you know, while we're waiting for APD, let's have a chat. And uh, almost all the time they tell me, 90% of the time it's like, I do it because nothing happens to me. There's no consequence for my actions. And I said, but yeah, but you're going to go to jail. He says, so what? I get out tomorrow. No more bail, right? Mm-hmm. Arnold model ruined all that. I'm not a proponent of it. I'm not a supporter of it. But, uh, you know, it's about for us. And I'm telling the, the local merchants and owners pull on me a lot from my experience. And I tell them I don't have all the answers. But it's about target hardening. And how do you do that in an area in Old Town, you, you know, where you want to preserve that look, that feel, you know, do you hang cameras and signs everywhere and light it up like a Christmas tree? Parts of it maybe, but that can't be the answer. The reality is, is that we have a huge, huge problem with drugs. And we know that, right? And we have a huge problem with poverty and crime. And all three of those are generational, right? It's all the, all some of these families know. And how do we break that cycle? And again, part of it is treatment, which we were, we're lacking in this state, right? Treatment. But uh, the other part, because I remember being a cop, you'd see someone in a mental distress, you had somewhere to take them. Or someone had dr- a drug addiction issue, you had somewhere to take them. And now we just, we just kind of try to manage it, drive by. I say we, but I'm not a part of that anymore. But it's a difficult situation and it's a difficult dance, but more needs to be done. And I don't think throwing money at it is going to be you know, the answer. I think we really need to get some people to sit down, be honest with each other, and quit worrying about their positions or their political affiliations and solve problems. But the system's not designed that way. It really isn't. It's a, it's a terrible New Mexico trait we have in, in politics, in, in my opinion. It's not designed to solve problems. Sorry, politicians and legislators, but it is what it is. And I understand that you've been asked to be a part of the governor's crime prevention task force now as a business owner with other business owners. What kinds of things or concerns are you guys sharing within that task force? And, and what is the objective? That's a really cool... Uh, kind of setup that they've, they've created. I think since the session has ended, we can be a little more effective, but it's a great collective of business leaders that, and I'm honored to be part of it. I think the biggest reason why the governor's office and the governor asked me part of it was because of my tie with business and law enforcement, but I'm kind of the only one with that background. The rest are just, you know, people that have really forged away a path forward in business and really hiring hundreds of people and making the business community stronger. So it's interesting to sit and listen to some of their issues, but it all comes, a lot of it rolls right back into, you know, the vandalism, the theft and the homelessness issue. So we're hoping now after the session's done, right, we can concentrate a little more on moving forward, moving the ball forward and coming up with some really good recommendations from the business perspective to the governor's office and hopefully the legislature to really look at what can, what, what bills, what can they push forward? that will help the problem. I don't think there's any one bill that someone's going to come up with that's going to solve it, but there are things that, uh, you know, the retail theft bill is huge, you know, chaining together all these thefts to add up, you know, as an aggregate to get over the felony level. I mean, that's a no brainer, right? It mm-hmm. should have taken no time to pass through, but it, it, it did. I think it passed, Yeah. but uh, there's others out there that will definitely enhance. And we hope to come up with recommendations on those and some others. And we're just not there yet, but we're getting there. What do you think maybe needs to happen to help business succeed more um, along those lines? I think we've kind of touched on a few elements here, but, you know, is this more investment needed from business owners, more sort of, I need to pitch in, roll up my sleeves more? Is it the police need more support? Is it, you know, more local support from the people, the residents who live around here to go out and patronize their businesses? I think we need more communication and coordination. What I mean by that is, when I started at the plaza, I hear pockets of stories of people getting victimized, businesses getting vandalized or victimized. And I started a WhatsApp group and anybody can join it actually. And it's about got let's say 90 members and they're either managers, owners, or business people that work in some of those businesses. And the way we communicate is if something happens in Plaza Don Luis, just three days ago, a guy broke into my maintenance shed area, stole a bunch of power tools. I have a picture of him. I have video of them. I'm able to put it on that WhatsApp and tell them this happened at this time and this person. Seems basic and simplistic, but it gets us communicating. Now we can look out for that person and then we can send that information to APD. Maybe they recognize them. Maybe there's some sort of linkage to other crimes. So we've done that the, last, the past year and it's been effective. But I think that, again, the answer to your question would be 
better communication, but also better interface with the police department. I mean, it, calling 242 cops is not the answer, right? There's got to be more, I think, resources dedicated towards not only violent crime, but retail crime. And how do we better communicate? Because the guy that's victimizing Home Depot is and stealing from them is probably stealing from five other places. Right. Uh, and I, and I, Sam Bregman and I have some history, but if anybody can hopefully change that with the DA's office, it's that guy, right? Yeah. Well, you know, hopefully he can put his money where his mouth is, but uh, I look forward to maybe hopefully he'll be doing some good things there to, to really prosecute the cases that need to be prosecuted. You can't prosecute them all. I get right. that, right? The system's be overwhelmed, but let's, let's, let's concentrate on that 10%. And I think another answer to that question is identifying and calling out that percentage, that criminal element that keeps doing it, right? and taking them out of circulation by prosecuting them. I think that's an interesting, just unique perspective that you have coming from such a, a long law enforcement career now as a business owner, you know, communication, networking, it seems like, yeah, like why weren't we doing this before? But is there anything else that we didn't ask you that you wanted to share? No, no, I I really appreciate the, uh, you know, owning that, owning the bar, I get a stream of people that, I was involved in as the chief and a police officer that come through there. And it's not just the state police officers I worked with and the local officers, it's reporters that I worked with from several different entities, some political people. And I really do appreciate the fact that they are able to speak to me now and kind of recap their interaction with me. I hear great stories about things I said or did that I don't even remember <laughs> because I was in the moment. Right. And right. it's kind of fun to relive it, but at the end of the day, I, I'm loving life. Tra I'm traveling all over the world. Like I said, I love mountain biking. I actually broke a rib. I, I got this great idea to jump in a mosh pit. You know, oh my I, God. I, I, tell, I tell people, <laughs> I'm in the last trimester of my life. I'm going to do it all, you know. <laughs> yeah. My girlfriend's like, I think you should retire from that. I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. So no more, no more mosh pits. But I just want people to know that, you know, I left it on the field. I love my job as the state police chief as far as what I did, but uh, there's life after it. And for anybody going through retirement, it's, sometimes it's easy for folks and they just kind of, you know, transition over and other times it's hard and I wish them the best. And I, I love talking to people about how, you know, when you hit rock bottom, which is where I was at when I left, there's only one way up for me. And that was up. I, I think I'm in a, a better place. And I, lo I love the fact that I can have good candid conversations and, and not have someone, as they call it from the fourth floor, you know, blowing me up because <laughs> nobody really cares what I say anymore. So it's, it's good. <laughs> Pete Cassettas, thank you so much for your time and, and sitting down and chatting with us. We appreciate it. Of course. Thanks again to Pete Cassettas for taking the time to chat with us. He's definitely had a storied career and now seems like is enjoying retirement in a different way. Appreciate you joining us here. You can always reach me at Chris McKee TV on social media and Chris.McKee on KRQE.com as an email. Yeah, and send us your ideas. I'm at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>